you know, when I've lived in different parts of this country and parts of the world, it's always fun when friends come to visit. And it's my pleasure to uh, introduce to you a good friend of mine, somebody that uh, was influential in my young days as a believer in Christ and uh, visited us in, as my wife and I lived in places like China and other places. And, and uh, somebody that's an author and uh, has an international ministry. It's great to welcome. And would you please, Stuart Briscoe. Thank you, Lauren, very much, and good morning to you. It's my pleasure to be with you. Thank you for inviting Jill, my wife, and me to be with you. Jill spoke here last night, and she's now on the other campus, I guess. Is that where she is? <laughs> I, I rarely know where my wife is, and she never knows where she is. So, One of the, um, one of the things that you'll hear people talking about nowadays is that all religions are basically the same. And seeing that they're all basically the same, they don't understand why there seems to be so much conflict between religions. And they say, if all religions are basically the same, it makes no sense that you have conflict between religions. So why don't we all say we're going to finish up in the same place so let's just get along, and let's stop all this arguing, and all this even worse than arguing. Well, people who say that all religions are basically the same either don't know much about religion, or they do know it, and they are willfully misrepresenting it, because the fact of the matter is this, all the religions are distinctly different from each other. Now, I'm not here to talk about that particular issue, but I want to start there by saying that take Christianity, for instance. It is totally different from the other major religions. In this regard, there are others, but here's just one. I think it would be true to say that religion is mainly about man searching, and when I say man, I mean generic man, man, male, and female. Major religions are basically about man looking for something beyond and above himself and his experience. Some would call it God, some would not call it God, but they're looking for something. In fact, some people will go no further than and saying, I, I seem to have everything in my life, but I'm still lacking something. I'm looking for something. Religion is all about man seeking something. Christianity, and listen very carefully here, Christianity is not about man seeking something. In fact, Christianity says that people don't seek after God. Christianity is all about God seeking people. Now, can you imagine anything more different than that? Religions are basically about man seeking God or something like that. Christianity is all about God seeking man. Now, I, I, could, I could give you lots of substantiation for that. Just take my word for it for now, okay? <laughs> now, 
If that is true, if God is looking around in the world for something in mankind, that raises a question with me, and I'm sure it does with you. What's he looking for? What's God looking for? Which raises another question. (laughs) Well, if I find out what he's looking for, the obvious question then is, has he found what he's looking for in me? That's what I want to talk to you about this morning for a few minutes. When I say a few minutes, that's a preacher's few minutes, (laughs) which usually lasts considerably longer than everybody else's. All right. Now, I have my iPhone here. Please don't think that I'm checking my emails. I I am not. I, I have found it very, very helpful on my iPhone to have an app that has different versions of the Bible. Uh, what that means is that any given moment, uh, I can be checking, uh, needing a, a reminder of something, a word of encouragement, a word of instruction, or I may want to share something with somebody else, and I don't need to be carrying a big book under my arm. I have this, and it's very disarming. <laughs> people are quite used to people getting out their iPhones, and so that, that's what I do. Now, uh, it's, it's a little difficult uh, keeping talking and finding what I'm looking for, <laughs> but I, I know that you realize that that's, that's what I'm doing now. And I'm turning to John chapter 4. And in John chapter 4, we have the account of Jesus talking with a woman in a region called Samaria in a town called Sychar. Now, if you go into that region of Samaria today, it's called the Occupied West Bank. And if you go to Sychar, it's not called Sychar, it's called Nablus. And so Nablus on the Occupied West Bank is often in the news today. In the center of that particular little town, there's an ancient well. And John chapter 4 is the story of Jesus arriving in that ancient town sitting on that ancient well and getting into conversation with a particular woman there. And the conversation goes all over the place and then eventually settles on the subject of, uh, of religion. And immediately the woman gets a little skittish about this and she said, oh, well, you worship on that mountain, but we worship on this mountain. You go to that church, we go to this church. You, you believe what you want to in your church and don't say anything about what I believe in my church and I won't say anything about what you do in your church and we'll all just get along. And, and Jesus said, look, the day is coming. The day is co- in fact, it's arrived. The day is coming, and in fact has arrived, when God won't be talking about which church you worshipped in, which mountain you worshipped on, because what God is looking for is people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. All right? Now there's the answer to the first question. If it is true that God is looking for something... Scripture says, in fact, Jesus said, God is looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, that was the first question I wanted to answer, so that didn't take long, did it? (laughs) 
Now, if we can get through the second one as quickly as that, we can get you out the earliest you've ever got out on a Sunday morning. But don't get too excited. Okay. God is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, that raises a second question. Has God found what he's looking for in me? In short, am I someone who worships God in spirit and in truth? Actually, one of the things that Jesus said to this lady before he said that was that many people worship, but they don't know what they're worshiping. In fact, when the Apostle Paul went into the ancient city of Athens, he found a, found a shrine there and he quoted it because inscribed on the shrine was to the unknown God. To the unknown God. And the reality is, some people worship, but they're not at all clear as to what they're worshiping. Some people worship, and it's rather a sort of a formal experience. It's a traditional experience, or it's something that they do because they've always done it, or it's something that they do because it keeps their wife happy if they will do it. But is, is that what God's looking for? There, there's a famous uh, British author called C.S. Lewis. I'm sure many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis. He, he's a very interesting fellow to read because he had a remarkable spiritual pilgrimage himself. So he touches people all along the journey. He started out as an atheist, uh, thought that through and decided that was... Uh, that w could not be, uh, he, he, he couldn't accept that any longer, so he became an agnostic. He worked through his agnosticism and decided that really he should be a deist. Uh, he thought through deism and concluded that that wasn't right, so he became a theist. Um, after he'd thought through theism, uh, he decided that wasn't right, uh, and so he became a Christian. He began to think through, Christian, uh, through Christianity, and he became what we call an apologist for Christianity. Now, apologist doesn't mean somebody who apologizes for being a Christian. Oh, forgive me. I, you know, I, I, I happen to be a Jesus follower, but don't hold that against me, and I won't hold it. Not, not that kind of apologist. An apologist, in the biblical sense, is somebody who can make an apologia, a reasoned argument for Christianity. So look at where he started out. Atheism, agnosticism, deism, theism, Christianity, and he becomes somebody who is able to give a reasoned statement, a reasoned argument for the validity of Christianity. Different points along that pilgrimage, he wrote about his own experience. <laughs> and at one stage, this is what he said about himself. He said, I believe in God, I just don't like him very much. Now, people very rarely say that. They often think it. I believe in God, I don't like him very much. And then he went on to say what he didn't like about God. 
<laughs> what he said about what he didn't like about God was that God was looking for people to worship him. He said, I, I don't like that. Now, wh why did he not like that? Well, he tells us, and ladies, please forgive me. I am quoting C.S. Lewis in the next sentence. Here are the quotes. <laughs> okay. I'm quoting C.S. Lewis. He said, I don't like God insisting that people worship on him, worship him, because he sounds like a spoiled woman who constantly needs compliments, assuring her of how beautiful, how gorgeous, how wonderful she is, because she has such a fragile ego, because her self-image is so low that she needs lifting up, she needs bolstering all the time. And C.S. Lewis thought, God seems to have a very low self-image. He seems to have a very weak ego indeed. All the time, say, oh, come on, somebody, worship me. Please, worship me. Come on, sing louder, folks. I can't hear you. Is that what God's like? Well, C.S. Lewis, he was a good thinker. He thought, no, that can't be right. God is not looking for worshipers for his benefit. He doesn't, need, he doesn't need that. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need the world. He doesn't need anything. Well, then why in the world is God looking for worshipers? If it's not for his benefit, it's for ours. Now, that is quite a startling thought. Which raises another question now in my mind. You can see now how my mind works, right? That raises another question in my mind. Well, if God is looking for worshippers for the benefit of mankind, what benefit accrues to mankind when he worships? And what is he losing when he doesn't? I saw something that really struck me last Easter Sunday morning. Jill and I were teaching in a big church in Ottawa in Canada. We stayed in the hotel overnight. We got up early on Sunday morning. <laughs> and I, I always, uh, on a Sunday, uh, Easter Sunday morning, I, I always sing to myself or anybody else who will listen, very few people <laughs> included in that group, I always sing, Christ the Lord is risen today. Hallelujah. In actual fact, I think we should sing that every single day. And on Easter Sunday morning, as I'm humming to myself, Christ the Lord is risen today, hallelujah, I'm also reminded, and I'm glad I'm up early this morning, because it says Christ rose up early. Christ rose up early. As we came out of our room in the hotel, walked along a long corridor, I'm humming to myself, Christ rose up early, <laughs> and on every hotel room door was a little thing hanging which said, do not disturb. 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 Easter Sunday morning. Now, if people can't worship on Easter Sunday morning, it's highly unlikely they're going to do it any other time. So, is this not an issue we should be asking ourselves about? Why is it that there will, the vast majority of people 
in America today will not even enter their heads to engage in anything called worship. Is that, is that an issue? Is that serious? You say, well, it all depends what, <laughs> what the point of it is. Why worship? Why should we worship? Somebody said that to you. What would you answer? Let me, let me tell you why I believe God is looking for worshipers, because it benefits mankind. It is only when we worship, now listen carefully, it is only when we worship that we enter into the fullness of the uniqueness of our humanity. It is only when we worship that we enter into the fullness of the uniqueness of our humanity. All right, now that's a very dogmatic statement. Needs some substantiation. All right, let me take it apart. What does humani- what's humanity? What's the uniqueness of humanity? What's the fullness of humanity? If we've got answers to that, we know why we should worship. What's, what's our humanity? Well, our, our humanity, I think we'd all agree, is that we're all humans. And we can tell that we're not humans because we are different from other aspects of the created order. And yet, interestingly enough, we are clearly an integral part of the created order. Yet, on the other hand, we are clearly distinct from it. Therein lies the uniqueness of our humanity. Now, what is the, what is the created order made up of? Well, smarter people than me tell me that the created order is made up of animal, vegetable, and mineral. And I'm part of the created order. So here's a question for you. Take a good look at me. What am I? Animal? Vegetable? Or mineral? Don't shout out the answer. (laughs) Well, I'll shout out the answer for you. The answer is yes and no. I'm not an animal. I'm not a vegetable. I'm not a mineral. But if you take me apart little piece by little piece, you know what you'll discover? You'll discover I have an affinity with the animal kingdom and the vegetable kingdom and the mineral kingdom. How do I know? In actual fact, this body of mine, if, when, I, when I die, which will happen, when I die, some strange processes will take place in my body. And the children here, so I won't go into details. But when they have my funeral service, part of the funeral service, they will intone these rather sobering words, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. And you know it, and I know it. So in a sense, I'm mineral, but I'm more than mineral then I must be vegetable. Well, my mother did say, eat your veggies. <laughs> and I remember as a kid stuffing myself with veggies because I grew up in wartime England when food was rationed. So everything we got that you could put in your mouth, you ate then just thankful for it. And a lot of it was just vegetables. Just imagine that, kids. <laughs> Sometimes we had nothing but vegetables. 
So what am I? I guess I'm just a heap of minerals stuffed with vegetables. But no, I'm not. So I must be an animal. No, I'm not an animal. We have a friend. We have a friend. And she, she's a mother of about eight children. Remarkable young woman. And I, I could talk about her for, for a long, long time. But there's one thing that's particularly interesting to me. They found she had a congenital heart disease. And they found that she needed a new valve in her heart. So do you know what they told her? They said, you can either have a mechanical valve put in, or we can take one out of a pig and fit it in. <laughs> yeah, can you believe that? They can actually take pieces out of a pig and fit them in us. They work. They were. Now, her singing isn't very good. She oinks when she sings. <laughs> but apart from that, you would never, ever know. So we have an affinity with the animal. We have an affinity with the mineral. We have an affinity with the vegetable. But you know that we're not just that. What is the uniqueness of our humanity? Uniqueness of our humanity, you'll find it in Genesis chapter 1. That's a good place to start. Genesis chapter 1. God said, let us make man, listen, in our own image. In other words, let me tell you about your humanity. You have an affinity with the animal kingdom, with the vegetable kingdom, with the mineral kingdom, listen, and you have an affinity with deity. And that is what sets you apart from the rest of the created order. Now, what is worship? It is when we worship that we enter into the fullness of the uniqueness of our humanity. And what is the uniqueness of our humanity? That in addition to our affinity with the created order, we have an affinity with the creator. And worship is the knowledge of, the experience of, the enjoyment of that affinity. And seeing God gave us that unique capacity, it's perfectly obvious that he is desperately anxious that we should enter into the fullness of it. That's why he's looking for worshipers. So has he found one in you? <laughs> well, you say, well, what exactly do you mean by worship? Do you mean just going to church? and singing songs, and then after we've worshipped, we sit down and we listen to the preacher. Well, you talk to a lot of people in church, they'll say, yeah, we're going to worship for 20 minutes and then you can share. So a lot of people have got the idea that worship is singing songs about God or about our experience of God. Is that what worship is? I would submit to you that worship is entering into the fullness of the uniqueness of our affinity with deity. All right, let's go back to my iPhone. This, this iPhone of mine causes problems between me and my 
numerous grandchildren, most of whom are in their 20s. They think this is an unjust world. Why should an old guy like me have an iPhone that I clearly do not understand <laughs> when they, smart 20-year-olds, fully understand the thing and can't afford one? I say to them, I feel your pain. <laughs> now get over it. Okay. <laughs> this iPhone of mine uh, stays on my belt. When I, when I press it on, you, you can't see this, but I've got a picture of the African bush and two umbrella trees on the horizon of the African bush. Why? because I was there just a week or two ago. I took this picture, and I loved the bush in Africa. While I was in Africa, it was perfectly possible that people in America who know my number, 262-442-7723, could dial that number, and wherever I was, including in the bush in Africa, it would start vibrating on my belt, I would start ringing, I have both going because... <laughs> because I can't respond to either of them very well at, at my advanced age. So I hope I'll hear or feel one of them. When that happens, I know somebody is trying to contact me. They want to reveal something to me. So this little gizmo of mine is able to receive what they're revealing. So I pick it up and I say, hello. And now what's happening Having received what they're revealing, I respond. And they tell me what they want me to know, and I learn what it is that they're trying to tell me, and then I respond appropriately to what I've learned that they have told me. Reveal, receive, respond. God is in the business of self-revelation. That is a fundamental aspect of God. God is in the business of self-revelation. Because you have an affinity with deity created in the divine image, remember that is the uniqueness of your humanity, because you have the ability, you are like a very, very special gizmo that God has put on earth that can receive what He is revealing. But more than that, when he reveals himself to you, just think of that for a minute. The creator of the universe revealing himself and his character and his purposes and his intentions to you. Just think of that. What would you expect as a result You'd expect people to respond to that. How in the world would you expect people to respond to that? <laughs> well, that's, that will lead you into the whole subject of what does worship look like. That's what worship is. Worship is responding to the reception of God's self-revelation. Reveal, receive, Respond. 
Tell me, say it with me. Reveal, receive, respond. Couldn't hear you. All right. So how do we receive what God is revealing? Or put it another way, how does God reveal himself? Oh, well, now this, uh, this uh, by the way, this is a whole series of talks. <laughs> You're getting the abbreviated version. And when my time is up, I, I want to finish, but I'll stop. The result is identical. One is just slightly more abrupt than the other. <laughs> All right. Reveal, receive, respond. How does God reveal himself? Number one, he reveals himself in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. You're probably familiar with that statement. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? I like the story of the little boy in Holland, the Netherlands, of tulip fields, where in glorious bloom, the little boy was standing there, and the old gentleman walked past, and he heard the little boy was just looking raptly at all these beautiful flowers. And he heard the little boy say, Well done, God. Well done, God. Do you ever become overwhelmed at times with the grandeur and the beauty and the intricacy and the complexity and the enormity and the awesomeness of the created order? And do you pause? Do you say, well done, God? It's called worship. Now, if that was the only way God revealed himself, what would we know? Well, we'd know him as creator. But the second way that God revealed himself, first, creation. Secondly, through covenant. Covenant. Now, I don't have time to get into this, but God made a covenant with Abraham, and what he said basically was this. I am going to do something about the human race, and I'm going to use humans to do it, and I'm going to start with you, Abraham and I'm going to be your God, and you should respond and be my man. And this is what it means that I will be your God, and this is what it means that you will be my man. All right? I'm committing myself to that. You commit yourself to me. Covenant. <laughs> and what does that reveal to us about God? That he's just a creator? No. That he is a person, and that he's relational. He's relational. Now, you see, you can have a creator out there, and lots of people believe in a creator. Oh, yeah, I believe in the creator. Well, deists believe in the creator. They, they believe that he created the world and then either lost interest or lost control or lost both. So you've got to do more than just believe in a creator because he's revealed himself in covenant. What he said to you is basically what he said to Abraham. I'll be your God because I've got purposes for the human race and I'd like to work out some of my purposes for the human race through you. So I'll be your God. This is what it means that I'll be your God. Now you be my man, you be my woman. 
this is what it means for you to be my man, woman. And so what you do, you see, is God reveals himself in covenant. So you learn all that you possibly can about God's covenant. That's why you love the Old Testament, because it's God's dealings with his covenant people. We love creation because God reveals himself in Christ. We love the Old Testament because God reveals himself in covenant. But if that's all we knew of God, <laughs> we wouldn't know something else wonderful about him. And then God revealed himself in Christ. Have you got it? Creation, covenant, Christ. Revealed himself in Christ. You know what Jesus said? <laughs> One of his disciples, after being with him for three years, he said to Jesus, I wish you'd just show us the Father. I wish you'd just show us the Father. And Jesus said, oh. <laughs> How long have I been with you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's why we love the New Testament, isn't it? Because in it, God reveals himself in Christ. And revealing himself in Christ, we can't get enough of the Gospels because God is revealing and we are receiving and learning to respond to the Christ of the Gospels who shows us not only that God is the great creative power, and in addition, that shows that God is entering into a relationship with humanity. But it shows us that God is a suffering God. That God is a holy God. That God is a righteous God who is gracious and merciful. And he points us unerringly to the cross. And he said, if you have any doubts, look at the cross and look at Christ. And in Christ, you'll begin to get an image of the wonder of God. But Christ has gone. But he's come again in the person of his Spirit, and he indwells his people, the community of faith. And through the community of faith, he is continuing his ancient work. That is why he reveals himself not always as clearly as might be in the church. Creation, covenant, Christ, and church. That's why we love the church with all its faults. For the church is the body of Christ. And we see Christ in action. You worshiper. You see, a worshiper is avidly tuning in. Oh, by the way, there's something I've learned also on airplanes. They tell me to turn off my iPhone so that it won't interfere with navigation and all that kind of good stuff. Actually, I've often forgotten to do it. <laughs> We, we didn't get interfered with, as far as I can see. But anyway, <laughs> it's rather nice because there may be some people trying to get in touch with me and I'm having a little break. And that's the problem. 
A lot of people have had a little break from God. They just switched him off. The trouble with a little break is it becomes a longer one and a longer one and a longer one till in the end they just throw away the iPhone. That's not what God wants for you. Well, here's the final question then. If it's all about revelation and reception and response, how do I respond? In other words, I'm asking the question, what does worship look like? (laughs) Well, I have precisely two minutes left. Fasten your (laughs) seatbelts. This is what's interesting to me. There are about six different words for worship in the New Testament. Six different Greek words in the New Testament. The most common one is the word proskuneo. Proskuneo means literally to kiss towards. To kiss towards. Here's the picture. Here's the king sitting on his throne. One of his subjects comes in to the king, comes up to him and says, Hey, how's it going, George? Are you having a good day? I'm having a good day. I wish you would have a good day too. Is that how you come into the king? Well, you're Americans. You wouldn't know. So, <laughs> so I'll tell you. No, no. When you come in to the king, you come in when he grants you an audience. Then you come in with reverence and awe. Then you come to the bottom step and you kneel. And when you kneel, you reach forward and you take his hand and you kiss his hand. Kiss towards. And that is the most common word for worship in the New Testament. What does it mean? It means the appropriate response of the reception of the revelation is reverential, adoring submission. Reverential, adoring submission. You know, it's perfectly possible to come to a worship service and know that you did something really, totally, out of order, contrary to God's desires for you, and you did it just last night. And you're coming now to, quote, worship. But you know the tragedy is that you know in your mind right now that you're going to go out and do it again as soon as you get the opportunity. Where's the submission there? Where's the worship there? You've attended a worship service. You maybe actually sang the songs. But unless there is reverential submission, there's not worship. The second group of words for worship, latruo and letugeo, these two words 
means serving him. We worship God by serving him. That is, by doing what he tells us to do. I've often gone to, quote, worship services where people have had a great time worshiping, but then the pastor gets up and gives a whole spiel about how they're short of money and they need workers and there's all kinds of things they've been asked to do, but they need more volunteers. And you hear and you sing to yourself, with all these people worshiping, if they know what worship is, that service, they'll all be standing in line pushing with each other to get an opportunity to volunteer, to serve. That's what worship is. Latruo, leturgeo, proscuneo. The New Testament's full of it. But I think one of, my, one of the most intriguing words to me is duleo. Duleo is related to doulos. And it was a word that Paul used to write to people who were slaves. And he tells them that even though they're slaves living in awful conditions, not like American slavery, not like the slavery the British are responsible for, not that kind of slavery, a different kind of slavery that was common in the ancient world. You know what Paul said to these people who were slaves? He said, now look, when you're slaves, you don't like being a slave. You don't like having no rights. So you've got a chip on your shoulder. And when you go to work for your slave master, if he's not looking, you don't do anything. In fact, you sabotage his efforts. You only work when he's got his eye on you. He said, you've got to look at your work entirely differently from that. You say, how do I look if I'm a slave? <laughs> well, no, no slaves here, but maybe, maybe you don't enjoy your, daily, your weekly work, your daily work very much. How, how, how do I approach my work? Well, this is what Paul said to the slaves. He said, don't just work if your slave master's got his eye on you. For you serve, Juleo, the Lord Christ. You serve the Lord Christ. Television reporter was on a new building site. He interviews the three guys working there. He said, what are, what are you doing here? He said, what I'm doing here is, he says, I get my barrow in the morning and I shovel gravel into it and I load it up with gravel, and I push it over here, and I tip it out, and then I turn around, and I come back, and I load it up again, and I walk over here, and I tip it over here. That's what I do every day. So he goes to the second guy. I said, what are you doing? He said, what am I doing? He said, I'm putting shoes on my kids' feet. I'm putting clothes on my wife's back. I'm putting food on the table and I'm putting a roof over their heads. That's what I'm doing. And he went to the third guy. He said, what are you doing here? And he said, sir, I'm building a cathedral. Three attitudes to work. Sheer drudgery, purely utilitarian, making a living, 
or being part of something greater and grander than myself. Work as worship. Work as worship means I go to work and I talk to the one who's revealed himself to me and I've received what he's revealed and I've said to him, Lord, I thank you for the gift of today. It's a gift. I thank you for the gift of energy. It's a gift. I thank you for the gift of time. It's a gift. I thank you for the gift of skills. They are a gift. Now I'm going to work. <laughs> I'm going to put in my day, and I'm going to put in my day exerting my energy, exercising my skills, utilizing my time, every one of which is a gift from you. Watch me. Watch me, Lord, and be delighted with the way I am using your gifts out of gratitude to you. It would revolutionize the workplace. It would revolutionize your day. And it's called worship. And it's only when we worship that we enter into the fullness of the uniqueness of our humanity. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, thank you that you constantly reveal yourself to us. Thank you that we have the ability to receive what you reveal. Teach us to respond appropriately. In Jesus' name.